I'd like to talk this uh, evening about the transformative power of metta. And I'm noticing that uh, some of the transformative power has brought many of our retreatants towards the rear of the room. (laughs) I think that must, uh, it has to signify deepening, right? So I'd like to reflect on um, really five aspects of this transformative power of metta. I'd like to talk about how metta helps us to lead with our hearts, both here and in our daily lives, about how metta helps us uh, concentrate our being. Thirdly, the uh, purificatory aspects of metta. And fourthly, I'd like to particularly focus on how we work with uh, judgments, self-judgments and judgments of others, which is such a big theme uh, for most of our metta practice. And lastly, how metta helps us to connect, not just with ourselves, but with others. And what I'd like to do is to, uh, in a way, uh, pay tribute to one of my uh, metta benefactors, uh, whose birthday is today, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., I think you may know it's his birthday today. And I'd like to weave in uh, material from his own life, his own uh, speeches, into the talk at different places. Because I think he really, in many ways, certainly expressed a quality of um, kindness and love and was often quite explicit about it. So the first way that metta transforms us is that it really helps us to lead more with our hearts, to come to any given moment with our hearts leading. And I use that that phrase, uh, leading, recognizing that uh, in a way we each lead as it were, the, the parts, some parts of ourselves lead more than others. Some lead with their minds, others with their bodies, others with their hearts, maybe others in a more integrated way. And I know for myself, uh, I think I was really, even though I think there was a very uh, deep heart nature, partly growing up to be a man in this culture, I was very much conditioned to lead with my thinking and my mind. And I remember um, having a very stark experience of this uh, when I was in my early 20s and I was uh, a student and I was living in Germany and I was uh, living on this farm and had to walk about two miles every day. And I would, uh, at a certain point, I just noticed that I was thinking a lot. In fact, I was thinking all the time. Some of you may have had similar, <laughs> similar, similar flashes of insight into the totally obvious, <laughs> sometimes called. <laughs> uh, and I had this uh, phrase which developed. It's like, uh, I'm like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> That's what I thought. 
And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't so much a judgment. It was actually just, oh, this is interesting. It was interesting because I had, you know, been very athletic in certain ways. I had actually been a competitive athlete for 10 years, which um, actually helps with meditation. Some of you may notice that certain, certain, some things help, some things don't help so much. But, um, so I've been quite physical, but not really aware of my body. They're not the same. Quite physically active, but not so aware. And, and so for me, uh, metta practice has been quite uh, wonderful in certain ways to uh, help, help me learn to really lead in different ways. And I think in, in a way we could say that the metta practice uh, is a kind of training so that for a week or when we do the metta practice, we lead with our hearts. And then for many of us, we need to really develop that with some focus and some discipline. And then at a certain point uh, later, we can integrate that ability with our other abilities to, I, I think in some way we need training to lead with our hearts, to lead with our bodies, to lead with our minds. It's a, it's a way of looking at what, uh, at the transformative process in general. And it's, I want to recognize that metta practice is one way to do that. There are other ways to do it. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, name that this, that this uh, practice I think is, in some ways is unique. Uh, I taught a few times uh, with uh, a friend who was a, who was a Christian contemplative. We, we taught retreats on um, Christian and Buddhist approaches to uh, opening the heart. And, and of course, there are practices in Christian or Jewish or other traditions, but nothing quite so systematic as metta. That's not to say at all that uh, people are somehow more loving, but there's, there's a kind of a more loving in Buddhist tradition. Of course not, but there's some kind of very uh, clear discipline. But nonetheless, we find practices that have been developed. There's the, in uh, Christian tradition, there's the prayer of the heart, which really teaches um, that practitioner to lead with the heart, developed in particularly in the um, Russian Orthodox tradition. It was a way of making sense of what Paul said when he said, pray unceasingly. In a, in a sense, that's what we're doing. We're, we're having this prayer, prayerful intention unceasingly. Or there's a, there's a beautiful passage in the um, Old Testament where uh, King David says that he talks about how he remains centered in a kind of devotional awareness. He says, I keep Yahweh before me always. And I was also thinking of other traditions where we do this practice. In Tibetan tradition, uh, there's the practice of Tonglen, which, which probably many of you have done, which is the practice of, of breathing in the difficulty or the pain and breathing out relaxation and kindness as a systematic practice. It's a very powerful practice. I uh, found myself spontaneously doing that when my father was dying about a year ago, just doing Tong Lun practice. And then, you know, a few days before he died, I told him I'm doing Tong Lun practice. And I didn't, he knew something about Tong Lun, but I explained what it was. I said, I'm breathing in difficulty and breathing out relaxation and light. He had a big smile came over his face. It was really um, quite something. 
I also thought of uh, Julia Butterfly Hill, you know, the, our local tree sitter uh, who sat up in Humboldt County. And she speaks of asking with every action, am I acting out of love? It's a spirit of metta also. And there's, um, there's a beautiful passage in King's work, which I wanted to read, which is also really about this. It's very much the same spirit as our metta practice. Let's see, this is from this is one of the last talks that King gave in his life. I think it was his last uh, address to the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which he was, uh, I think at one point, the president of. This is what he said uh, kind of midway through the talk. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we are moving against wrong also when we do it because John was right, God is love. One who hates does not know God, but one who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. That's King. And so we do this practice. We, we learn to lead with the heart. We, in a way, we come back over and over again to this intention to be kind to ourselves, to others. And again, it's, it's worth repeating that metta is a kind of intention practice. It's not a production process. We're not a production practice. We're not saying... You, Donald, produce metta right now, or any of us. And, and I think that's important to say that because some of us, I know from the interviews, we can get down on ourselves because the metta isn't of the quality that we want, or it's not enough, or it feels dry. And it's really, the, the practice is really coming back to the intention to be kind. It's like a knocking on the door of the heart. It's not a storming of the door. Or it's not a demanding that the door be open. It's this continual knocking. And that's really, really crucial. It's not like, um, it's not like uh, the development of metta is a linear process where, where when I do a certain number of phrases, I open my heart a certain quantity. Have you noticed? <laughs> it, it's actually quite mysterious. And, and in the interviews, many people have said that here, you know, I'm doing the metta, it feels dry. And then something happens, and it just opens up, and there's beautiful metta right there. Just you know, another sitting after it felt really dry, or people say, it doesn't seem really to be happening, but then I'm up in the night, I have a difficult experience, and surprisingly, the metta is right there. And uh, it's very much like the story that Mark told a few days ago about uh, Sharon Salzberg. You remember that story where she knocked over the vase, and then criticized herself for being a klutz. I had, I had a very similar experience without a vase. Um, <laughs> but it was, I was, the first time I ever did metta for about a week, it actually felt quite dry. 
And uh, I was, but I was just doing it. I was dedicated and really, um, really wanted to do it. And so I kept on doing the metta and there weren't dramatic results. And then one day after breakfast, I remember, and I wasn't even doing any formal uh, metta practice. And I suddenly said to myself, I love you. (laughs) I felt very, very touched. (laughs) Um, So there was, um, it's non-linear. And so what that means is that we really need to have a certain amount of faith in the process. And I think that develops over time. A second aspect of metta is the uh, way that we develop concentration. And this is, again, a way to look at the whole process and know that there actually, we, we often do the metta and we want a certain result or we want this to happen, but there's actually a lot happening and it's actually, a lot of it's beneath the surface and a lot of it's really hard to know. But a reflection is helpful that we're in repeating the phrases, we're uh, doing a lot. In being here, there's a lot going on that's not just the, you know, that has a lot more to do with the conditions for the metta to develop. For example, in being here, we may think sometimes that nothing's happening, but actually we're acting very, very ethically. We're acting with a lot of care. We're working with the ethical precepts. You can feel in the opening of doors for each other or the respect, there's a lot. Uh, that's really a part of metta. We forget that sometimes, that, the, that metta is expressed through the, uh, the care that we have. That do, that's not just about uh, a certain feeling you know, exploding in the heart or something, that there are other aspects of metta. We're also developing faith. We're also, in a way, developing concentration. The continual coming back to the phrases Um, furthers concentration, which is really um, a very important aid to the metta. And I think as as Heather was saying last night, metta is sometimes taken as a a concentration practice that one uses to uh, move into uh, very deep concentration states, to the absorption states that are called the jhanas. And one can do metta with that purpose because it's a kind of a focusing on... Mm, one, as it were, meditation object. And there's a certain, I, I love the fact that we're just really doing one thing. Isn't it? I mean, it's not, it's not very hard to know what we should be doing, right? <laughs> I mean, you just, you wake up, there's just one thing to do. You're, you're walking outside, there's just one thing to do. You're with, you're, you know, you're with lunch, there's just one thing to do. And there's a certain simplicity that is actually... Um, it's a kind of concentration, really. Uh, the, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard once said, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. And we develop that quality of uh, concentration when we, uh, when we do the metta. And I want, I want to say a word uh, about the, the very phrase concentration, because as many of you know, the Pali word is samadhi. And in some ways, concentration isn't a great translation. 
it can really suggest a kind of uh, laser-like focusing just onto one particular content. And the meaning of samadhi is more a kind of gathering of our being together. You know, it's a kind of unifying of the different parts of ourselves. And so maybe unification of our being would be a better uh, translation of samadhi. It's really, uh, the very word is related to the, um, you know, um, to the Indo-European words like that mean coming together or gathering. The word psalm has cognates in a lot of the um, Indo-European languages. And so to think about samadhi or concentration, it's really this gathering of our being more than this, this focusing like a, like a laser. And it's, it's actually um, a misunderstanding of concentration that I certainly followed for a lot of years, where I thought that concentration was a kind of using of my mind, like a, almost like a um, pointing, focusing laser device. And over time, I came to, to really relate to concentration in a deeper way and have, have concentration actually not so much be a matter of will or just forcing my intention on my consciousness, which is a kind of violence, really. But rather, uh, that quality of samadhi or concentration can be a kind of very restful gathering of our energies. And there's a way that concentration can... Um, emerge just by a more of a letting be than a forcing or a, a pushing. And that's actually, uh, I think, quite important for, for our meta practice because it can be more, a kind of, uh, more of a gentle process as we do this and less of an imposition on will, of will on, um, on ourselves. We can't really... Um, we can't really force love and we can't really force concentration. We can have something that's a little bit like it, but the authentic qualities of love and concentration more are an expression that come more organically out of our being. One of the ways that we become... uh, concentrated or unified is very much related to what Heather was talking about last night, is that we, through the metta, even though we're focusing on metta, in a way, we're also bringing in the qualities of the Brahma Vihara. We're bringing in the qualities of compassion and joy and equanimity as well. There's a way in which, as Heather was suggesting, it's really the question, it's really the quality of the open heart and the open heart, when it meets difficulty or, or pain, becomes compassion. When it meets beauty or wonderful qualities, it can become joy. And that, uh, that balancing factor of equanimity helps it, that open heart to be present with whatever is there. So in that sense we can see that if our metta doesn't have some of those other qualities, it can actually be distorted. That if if our metta doesn't have a quality of compassion, it can be overly what? Overly nice or overly uh, idealistic sometimes. If our metta doesn't have a quality of 
of joy, it can also be out of balance. If our metta is just uh, okay, is just there when things are going well, it doesn't have the quality of, of equanimity. And so it's, it's a way to look at our practice that we'll be especially exploring in these afternoons to see that a mature metta actually has uh, wisdom in it and has some of these other aspects of compassion. It's part of the way to look at that question of the relationship between metta and mindfulness or metta and wisdom, that the, they, they tend in their mature forms to include the other, that they're not really, they're not really uh, separate in that way. And one of the ways that this gets expressed that I like a lot is in the, um, I've been told by, by Gil Fronsdell, who also teaches here, that the way that mindfulness is actually expressed in the Chinese language is through a pictogram that has two characters. And one of the characters is for present moment. And the other one is a composite of the characters for home and the character for heart. So mindfulness becomes finding a home for our heart in the present moment. No great debate about mindfulness versus metta there. So, so I, I love that, really. As we develop concentration, we can notice sometimes that we're um, unbalanced in certain ways. The development of concentration as the development of metta has its ups and downs, and it's useful to remember this, to see that sometimes, for example, we can have um, more concentration and not so much energy, that we can be imbalanced in that way, and our and our, our minds can kind of become uh, somewhat vague, and we sometimes call it sinking mind, when there's fairly good concentration, but it's not connected with energy. And similarly, we can have a lot of energy, and sometimes this happens in our practice, where we can be, feel very restless and feel a lot of energy going through our bodies. And it's because we're needing some further concentration. And I think those of us who have done retreats can know that this is a very normal process. Sometimes we come in as we sit, we come into more energy. And sometimes it's too much, as it were, for the, the structures of our being, and it takes further time to develop that uh, quality of concentration that can balance the energy. Another aspect of the development of concentration that's sometimes hard is that, as I was saying before, its development is very mysterious. We can be completely scattered in one sitting and then completely concentrated the next sitting. Have you noticed that? And that's a, there's a lesson there, right? Which is don't make too much of whatever's happening in the present moment and watch, watch out for your stories because they will take you somewhere. And so it's this, uh, it's this very, and also, you know, the other side of it, I'm, I'm just telling it from the side of being distracted and then another moment being concentrated, but it goes the other way, right? We can be deeply concentrated, have this one, you know, the so-called good sitting, has anyone had a good sitting? And we can have this wonderful sitting, and then the next sitting, we can be distracted. It's mysterious. It's not, it's not linear. So it's really important to, to know that and to have... It really, it really is um, 
about the, there's a, that discipline which is really necessary for, the, for this practice. It's, it's really, uh, it's one of the reasons that I remember a question a few days ago that Mark answered where he, where someone asked, well, should I just go from um, self to benefactor to friend quickly back and forth? And Mark's counsel was to stay with a particular uh, person for a while. And similarly, uh, we can often, it's helpful to just stay with a particular round of meta practice or stay with, uh, whether it's staying with the self or benefactor or staying with particular phrases because there are going to be times which are dry and even though we often give the counsel with the metta practice, go where the juice is or go where the metta is happening more fully, that has to be balanced with the counsel that we need a certain amount of discipline because if we just changed our phrases every time they weren't working or shifted away from self or benefactor when they seemed to be a little uh, dry, we actually wouldn't get too far and we wouldn't actually notice some of the uh, challenging aspects of metta. It makes me think of this very uh, wonderful passage from uh, Thomas Merton where he actually he says, um, let me see if I, I'm saying it by memory, he's saying, love is learned, let's see, love is learned when the heart feels close, when, I think I actually have it here, let me see where this is. Well, I can't find it, so I'll, I'll paraphrase slash make it up. <laughs> but he, he says that uh, love is learned when, the, when, when it doesn't flow, when it feels stuck, and it feels like the heart has turned to stone. That's when we really learn love. And those actually, he's saying that we actually learn a lot in the really dry or difficult moments. And so it takes that combination of discipline plus going where the energy is, and so it's, I would say it's this mysterious combination of creativity and discipline that we really need in our metta practice. We're encouraged to see what works for ourselves, but if we were always shifting, we wouldn't get too far. So as we develop in concentration, we find that there are certain qualities which start emerging. And the concentrated mind is, is one of the beauties and wonders of our of our practice, really. And we find certain qualities of ease, of stillness, of peace. All of these are connected with concentration. There's a steadiness. As we become more concentrated, we're not so, we're not so spun around by our thoughts, by our judgments. We're, we're not so bothered. And sometimes when we're concentrated, we can see what may formerly, or maybe sometimes in daily life, knock us around or take us on a ride for 10 minutes or two hours. And sometimes we can notice it just in a flash and say, oh, there's that familiar minor demon. And I notice it just in a moment. With the concentrated mind, we notice it, and it doesn't have the same effect. There is also, with, with concentration, qualities of of bliss and rapture that start to fill up our being. It's one reason a lot of people come back for retreats. 
I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's one of the pleasures. It, it act, I think it has a deep impact on our being that we know, once we know a certain quality of peace or a certain quality of, of depth, it kind of stays with us, even with really difficult circumstances. And I've been really um, amazed sometimes to find myself in really challenging situations, sometimes in, I can remember a few times, in life-threatening situations, and somehow my practice is right there at those moments. And there's some kind of equanimity or uh, some, kind of, um, some kind of balance or some kind of remembrance. I think that when we experience something deeply, it stays with us in a certain way and it becomes accessible. The other thing about concentration that's important to say is that no matter how wonderful concentration is, and we do access that often in metta, we can have beauty of concentration, of stillness, of bliss, of um, even feeling this tremendous energy coming through us. But the Buddha is very clear that um, concentration is not the same thing as insight, and that concentration by itself doesn't lead to freedom. For that, we really need the... It's an interesting time to drink some water. (laughs) (laughs) For that, we really need... (laughs) We need insights. We need uh, need the qualities of wisdom. uh, my colleague Guy Armstrong tells the story, I remember the story he told of this um, um, practitioner who was very, very well known for deep concentration. And she would be in these deep states for sometimes being mostly concentrated for days on end. But sometimes she would come out of the very deep states of concentration and she would just start complaining. And so concentration is this great virtue and power, but it's not everything. And we also need that kind of insight. And in a way, that's partly to, to uh, answer that question that we've been continually raising about the relationship of uh, metta and mindfulness. And it points towards the third theme that I want to bring up, which is something that happens in our, in our metta practice, which is that we go through a kind of process of purification, and I'm thinking of purification in two ways, which in some ways parallel uh, metta and mindfulness. Um, on the one hand, we move towards the qualities of the open heart, the, quali- you know, the very beautiful qualities. We move towards the, really the features of our own awakened state or the, the, the qualities of awakening, the wisdom, the compassion, the equanimity, the joy, the stability. And that's part of what we do in metta practice. In a way, we, we go towards the, uh, what we might call the purer states, if we, want, if we use that language. And on the other hand, we also, as part of metta practice, we notice what, as it were, stands in the way of those states of peace or kindness or love. There's a way in which Metta practice almost brings up those um, qualities. Sometimes it might be anger or it might be fear. It might be 
that which we haven't attended to in our lives. It might be a kind of grief that we haven't looked at. And we, that comes up. And there's a way in which the metta practice by itself brings up all these qualities. That we, we think we're here for... <laughs> we think we're here for bathing in love, and we get a lot of that, but we also get something else. And that's part of the purification process. And it's very helpful to know that. I was thinking of um, um, a few years ago, I did five weeks of metta. And there were quite a few of these kind of uh, second kind of purificatory experiences. And some, some of them happen in the middle of the night. And people have, I know people have been mentioning, I've heard quite a few accounts of very uh, stark dreams and dreams. A lot of the dreams bring out some of our, our uh, hard places or our, our fear and that, that's quite natural, that dreams on metta retreats as well as dreams on most retreats often can be very vivid. And you might ask, where did that come from? And some people who don't even remember dreams very much in daily life remember them on metta retreats. It's interesting. And one of my experiences a few years ago, I was uh, doing about five weeks of metta. And one morning, about three in the morning, I totally woke up, just sat up from sleep, sat up in in, in bed, and spent an hour reviewing my history of relationships. (laughs) That was that. There was a quality of purification. It was like just bringing, uh, bringing attention to those qualities, and and other things have happened like that. That sometimes are you know, as many of you are exploring, the quality of judgment can come up very strongly. Especially, I'm not doing the metta right. Metta's not for me. I'm um, a metta mess. Um, you know, it could be all sorts of things. And we, it's important to know that they're really those two aspects. They're really those two aspects of purification. One is the moving towards the beauty, and one is moving towards the, the difficult material. And we can think of it very much like uh, Dr. King. You know, there is both the I have a dream speech where he's pointing towards the vision. And yet there's also this very detailed understanding of racism, of that which stands in the way of love, the, you know, both on a personal and a structural level. And so you have both of those. I think the transformative process, and I've been seeing that more and more, really has these two broad aspects. On the one hand, we deconstruct the... um, the old patterns that are linked with suffering. And that we do through mindfulness. We do that through this aspects of metta. We do that in a variety of ways. And on the other hand, we invoke the beautiful. We invoke the qualities of love. We invoke the qualities of joy. And we do both. And what I've seen in my own practice and in working with people, that we really need both. That sometimes what happens with mindfulness practice is we just become, um, we, um, I was thinking of a phrase that John Travis uses, we've just become dukkha wallows. We just get mired in a way in just looking at dukkha. And mindfulness is great for looking at dukkha, but it, it can be unbalanced. Or as I found in working with people around the issue of judgments, a lot of mindfulness is very beautiful, can look very closely, can reveal the nature of our self-judgments, our harsh way of looking at ourselves or others. But for most of the people I've worked with, it's really imperative to have also that balancing, 
to really have the touching of joy, to have the touching of love. And so metta and mindfulness are a beautiful combination because they really point to these two aspects of purification. And so in terms of that first quality, the Buddha talks about, for the first aspect of transformation, the Buddha talks about uh, what he calls the brightly shining aspect of mind and heart. He talks about it as luminous, and it's linked with metta in the suttas, that, there's, that we each have a quality that is brightly shining. I thought I'd read this passage where he talks about this, this quality, which is linked with metta. And you might feel that at times coming out or being there. Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This people who do not practice do not really understand. And so they do not cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind and heart. So it's this way, if we, if we have that sense that there's something that's present, that, that's somewhat, that's in us as it were, but not always on the surface. And sometimes we can think of the, that which covers that which is brightly shining in us. And so part of the process is to invoke the brightly shining, and part of the process is to see that which covers up the brightly shining, that which we can uh, look at and see And the process of metta, just like mindfulness, helps us to do that. We have this really gentle approach to being with that which covers over that which is brightly shining. We bring mindfulness, we bring care, we bring gentleness. In a way, we become friends with those those aspects of ourselves. It really points to, again, to the way in which... uh, doing metta is less of, we're not producing metta. We're not demanding that metta should be here. If metta is already there, it's more we're helping metta to shine forth by removing some of the impediments. And so hopefully that can make some sense of of what we're experiencing. And this purification process really occurs in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds, and we can see the way that there is that purification happening. We may feel that our bodies are being purified. And sometimes it's fiery, isn't it? We can feel perhaps, and I think we, we try through the yoga and the, mm, the good food in a way to purify our bodies, to help with that. But we can also feel as we sit that there's a kind of way that the knots that are present in our body come forth and we're asked to be attentive to them. And we work slowly and untangle them over time. A lot of times we can notice that there's some very clear somatic or bodily expression of the tightening of the heart. And I know I've sat for probably for weeks and weeks feeling a certain tightness around my heart. And that's part of the purification process. It occurs on a bodily level. And we can notice that. And so if you feel some tightness around the heart, it's good to bring some very 
um, gentle attention to it. We're not trying to force open that tightness. We're not trying to, as it were, storm the defenses, but rather we invite them to melt at their own pace. It's really what differentiates the approach here, maybe from some other approaches to transformation where people do say, we will storm the defenses. And I don't know if that really works very well, that it works just like we cannot impose love or change on ourselves or others. I think we have to really have that process occur more organically. And that's really what we're doing here. It can give us a sense also of patience with the process. We can't really use the, as it were, the force of the ego to change things by will. It doesn't work that way. Most of us have tried. You know, I know I've tried it. I, I have tried at length. And so I'm not saying this from a theoretical point of view. And I think many of you know that. You've tried to force or say, I will change. I will do this. And there's more of a gentle approach that's called for. So I want to say also a few words about uh, judgments because they're really a fairly intense aspect of our metta practice that we, we, one of the ways that we transform is that we work with the quality of self-judgment and judgment of others. And so in a way it's not really, uh, if it's present, it's not really an obstacle, but it's actually something that's uh, arriving in a way that we can work with. And so it's very helpful to know this. And I say this, I should say, I say this as a recovering judgmental person. (laughs) That uh, I was really trained to be judgmental. And I I think there are also some some positive aspects of it. I'm really using judgment particularly to mean that kind of harsh reactivity that we have towards ourselves and others. Sometimes, uh, Sometimes I think of it as having often some insight, because it wouldn't have a hook otherwise, right? If I say, uh, you know, if I say to myself something like, uh, if, I, if I look, um, let's, uh, probably a common one here is noticing when people eat a lot of food. Has anyone done this, form judgments of other people by their behavior at the retreat? I'll ask, anyone done this? <laughs> Has anyone made judgments? I mean, it's, you know, we don't actually have that much else to do. We, we, and so this is our this is our community towards whom we can be judgmental. And you know, actually, we you know, it, it'd actually be kind of humorous if we actually, um, if we drew lines between each of the individuals here and all the people in this room that they've been they've been judgmental towards. Can you imagine this crisscrossing mix? And we do that for very small things, for people maybe who come in late, and then for people who come in late, they do it for people who come in early, and you know, for how we eat, for what we wear. Since we're generally looking downward, a lot of it may be directed towards the style of socks that we wear. <laughs> it's, and so, um, good, opportunities, good opportunities to practice, and they're What's interesting about judgments is that there's often is some insight connected with it. I can notice someone who I would say, that person is acting rudely, right? And there may be something that I'm actually noticing that I can see that person is acting in a way that is whatever, um, speaking loudly, um, being, um, being unfriendly in certain ways. And I can notice those qualities 
But what constitutes the judgment is that there's some kind of reactivity, that I somehow um, take what I've noticed and run with it, that I take that noticing of a certain kind of behavior and I get very self-righteous or I get very condemnatory. That's what I'm talking about as, as judgment. If there wasn't that reactivity, it's judgment of a more neutral kind, of the kind that we would say the sky is blue. For most of us, that's probably not a reactive territory. Maybe for some it is, those California skies, they just stay blue all the time. <laughs> you know. but, uh, but that's what, but, so I like to think of judgments as a kind of a cognitive moment, a noticing of something linked with an emotional sledgehammer, some kind of reactivity. And so we can start noticing that. For myself, it was a very, it's been a very powerful practice that I've done probably for 25 years, but a number of years ago, I did an intensive period of practice. I did about four months of practice in a, in a year. And I was particularly uh, working with judgments. And I started noticing them when they came up and really working with them using mindfulness, using metta. I think that when we look to the territory of judgments, we have a number of beautiful tools. Metta is in a way working indirectly with judgments. As we cultivate those beautiful qualities, we shift the center of energy, as it were. And we, the judgment doesn't have the monopoly on defining reality, if you know what I mean. That if when, we, when we move towards the quality of metta, we can have more of a presence in that is, let's say, more positive. So metta is a beautiful way to work with judgment, that just by developing the quality of kindness and warmth towards ourselves and others, even if we actually aren't working directly with the judgments, we shift things quite a bit. I think you all know that. But we can also sometimes be quite mindful and work mindfully with the judgments and see what there, there is there. And some of you may at times feel those judgments and you can actually work to see what's present. You can use mindfulness at times. If judgments are particularly, let's say, a um, constant companion or a constant visitor, you can sometimes just bring the mindfulness and see what's there in the moment, noticing the patterns, noticing, starting to notice the stimulus, the, the judgment, and how it develops, where it goes, and really bringing mindfulness to that process. At times, we can also look more deeply with the mindfulness and notice what's there in the body, in the heart. What I found in working with judgments over a several-year period and really working very intensively with judgments where I would, sometimes I would even do something which we don't usually do in this practice, which I would actually call them forth and study them. I would call forth judgments that had been present and studied them and looked more deeply into what was there in the body and the heart. And what I found over time was that um, the judgments in my own experience, those reactive judgments, were all defense mechanisms to protect me from feeling some kind of unacknowledged pain. That there was some kind of pain that I could locate beneath the judgments and when I could tune in more, and this took, like I said, this took time, took a lot of years of practice, but there is a way in which we often form certain judgments at an earlier age when they may make some sense. You know, like a, ju- a typical judgment that I found in myself was when someone didn't listen to me 
like at a meeting or at work or something, when someone didn't listen to me, I found myself really judging the person and pulling back. I would, if someone in a meeting would not listen to me, I would find myself all of a sudden being judgmental and distanced. I would withdraw to a stance of distanced moral superiority. I'm sure a few of us have done that also. Do you know what I'm saying? There's this sense of someone does something I don't like, and I just pull away, and at a distance, I proclaim my own moral superiority to myself. And what I found was that when I looked more deeply into it, there was a kind of pain there. And when I touched the pain of not being listened to, for example, something started healing. And so there's a way in our metta practice when we surface something and we touch something that has some pain and hang out with it with the kind of kind presence, something gets healed. It's really part of the quality of purification that we go through. And I'll just say that uh, there was a a dream that I had uh, near the end of this fairly intensive cycle of working with judgments. And for myself, uh, in the dream, there was a a poster in my bedroom that had kind of like a Wild West poster of wanted, dead or alive, and it had my picture on it. (laughs) And I said in the dream, I think it's time to take that picture down. I think it's time to take that poster down. I said, hmm, things have shifted some. And so so this work with judgments is a really a long-term process. It's very, very deep. And in the metta practice, though, we can really start to bring that quality of kindness to it. It's actually very, very powerful, beautiful work. And um, yeah, it's been very interesting. I actually have worked for about two and a half years with a, a group of people who have all dedicated themselves to working with judgments. We meet monthly. The day that we meet is called Judgment Day. <laughs> and so... We meet, and it's been quite, it takes that kind of, it actually takes, not everyone has stayed there for two and a half years, but people generally stay for at least five, six, seven months because it takes that kind of sustained attention to judgments to really transform them in this way, using the tools of metta, of mindfulness, of deeper inquiry. The last quality that develops as we practice metta, you know, in addition to the way that we learn to lead with our hearts, we develop in concentration, we go through this purification process, and we also particularly transform the energy of judgments. A last aspect of transformation is that we, we connect. We learn to connect better with others, both with, um, actually with, both with the our whole world, really, as well as human beings, but with, with animals, with people, with other objects. The quality of metta is really this quality of connecting. And I, I think one of, the, um, one of the ways I would have answered that question that was asked in the morning about the tomato is that there is, you may have noticed that there's a quality, there's a way that you can bring the quality of metta even to being with um, the floor or your cushion or objects, that there's a way that metta is just this quality of warmth and respect that can actually be extended not just to people. 
I, I remember this uh, very powerful experience that happened uh, probably about 15 years ago when I had some, uh, I had some major jaw surgery. Basically, I was uh, born with my mother's uh, upper jaw and my father's lower jaw. <laughs> Either that or, or vice versa. Um, and it wasn't so good because it didn't really connect so well. This, this, this actually wasn't the meaning that I was saying about how metta helps us to connect. But, <laughs> but I, had to, I had this jaw surgery where they basically broke my jaw and then repaired it. It was actually a very uh, violent kind of surgery. And I later, I actually talked with a friend that, whose work some of you may know. Uh, some of you may know the work of Gene Achterberg, who wrote books on... Um, working with imagery, with people with cancer, and wrote a book called Woman as Healer. And she's done a lot of very groundbreaking work, and she's a, she's a friend and a colleague. And Gina had the same surgery, and she said, you, you know, the medical profession doesn't tell you how close to death general anesthesia is. And what it did for myself is that I, I woke up from the anesthesia, and I was basically in an altered state for about 10 days. And what was very striking particularly that there was something that had been touched about the fragility of my own being. That when I looked out, I had, uh, actually I alternated between fear and great love. There was, there was quite a bit of fear that was, that was present. But there was a tremendous amount of love and there was actually even love, I felt love for the coffee cups. For, for the, you know, because I knew they could break. That was my feeling at the time. You know, it stayed for quite a while. There was a kind of metta or compassion, even for the objects. Even, and I think you may you may experiment some. You can feel that very much like like Zen practitioners, they bow to their cushions. And there's a way that we can have that quality of gratitude or of warmth, not just towards people, but towards objects, toward uh, towards trees, towards the sky. And that's really that that uh, quality of connecting. It's the spirit of metta. There's a poem that I think I'll read, which is um, a poem about this that, that um, I wrote a, uh, probably about over 10 years ago. It's called Open Any Door, and it really points to the way that there are many doors for metta. Open any door of the heart. There are so many. Enter with your fear and your friend, the door that opens with every glance or quick word or the trees in prayer, even the shirt on your back that you don't see, the floor of old wood that you step on, doors open with them too. And then you go in into the one world where all things have tears and kindness for you and you for them where all things have tears and kindness for you and you for them. And that came out of that, that sense of even the metta for what we might call ordinary objects. And we can bring that quality of metta, as we'll talk more about at the, at the end of the retreat, we can bring that out into the world. We can have that quality of metta towards many other people. We can have it when we are riding on public transportation we can bring that quality of metta and have it be something that we greet every person with. It's a way of connecting. I have several people who work with me who, for whatever reason, they find themselves particularly drawn to doing metta when they drive. And we're not going to practice this for a while. 
but we, there's this way in which we, uh, we can bring the metta into all these different ways of connecting. And we can, the last thing I want to say is that we can also bring it in to our relationships with difficult people. And this is, I was thinking particularly of Dr. King, that he brought that quality of love, as, as with Gandhi, into the relationships with people who were supposedly his opponents. That we can bring the metta, the quality of metta, as we'll explore probably in two days, in two mornings, we can bring metta to difficult people. We can bring uh, metta, as Heather was saying, when people, um, when people do things that are not acceptable. We can have a metta that keeps our boundaries. I like to think of this as a kind of tough metta. You know, there's a metta that can stand up and do what's necessary. Uh, and this is, I think, very much the spirit of King. And I wanted to read one passage uh, in... King's work, where he says something like this about the way of combining metta right in the midst of difficulty. He talks about the need to balance love and power so that our metta or our love is not just something that's overly nice, that's not overly passive. As Heather was saying, it's not just a doormat. This is what King said. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. I'll read that last part again. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. I think I'll just end with a, a passage that's from Thomas Merton that also expresses this quality of bringing metta more and more into our ability to connect with others, to be with others. And this, this interestingly came when Merton, who lived in this rural monastery in Kentucky, and he went, he would go into Louisville for medical trips, and he had on one of his trips this very intense experience of feeling um, connection and love, which really expresses this last quality. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem is that we would fall down and worship each other. Thank you. So we'll take just about a minute for to sit quietly.
If only we could see others and ourselves in our depths and as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem is that we would fall down and worship each other. about a half an hour for walking down or walking or falling down and worshiping each other. (laughs) Thank you.